Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is another edition of Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli experts and practitioners in the fields of military, security, intelligence, and diplomacy. And our guest for a second part of our conversation is retired Brigadier General Dr. Amnon Sofrin, a senior military intelligence and Mossad official. Welcome back. Thank you. In our first part, um, we reached the uh, late uh, 1980s mm-hmm. with you um, after having been uh, wounded as an infantry officer transferring to military intelligence and uh, climbing up the ranks until you became the intelligence officer of a regular armored division, which happened to uh, get control of the entire West Bank once the Intifada started in late 1980. 87. And then um, what uh, probably happened is that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Um, what did you do? What did military intelligence do? That was later on. I was assigned at that time to be the head of uh, the reconnaissance school at Selim Negev, at Selim base. And uh, actually, we had plans to participate in one of the efforts that was planned by the IDF to be to interfere if needed going up uh, so your unit was supposed to uh, get reconnaissance for this uh, force or? right right part of my unit right because because your um, assignment there uh, was uh, to um, be in charge of reconnaissance surveillance and Not strategic intelligence, but battlefield. Very, very tactical intelligence. And, and this, it, this was one of the lessons you brought from 1973. Right, right. And I took advantage of this situation and uh, I began to train the people to be able to uh, participate in such operation that can be implemented if needed on the Jordanian side and going up if needed to other places as well. You had a, was, a black beard, a darker shade of, of hair at that time. I was younger. And by the way, the, the uh, Brigadier General in charge of the operations uh, division of the general staff was Mayor Dagan, who later became your boss at Mossad. Right. Were you in touch with him at that time? I knew him very well because I, I knew him when he was uh, one of the brigade commanders at the division. I was a deputy in, in this division, headed by General Kahalani. And later on, we met very often, but not at that time. At that time, I was under the control of uh, the Southern Command, okay, directly. General Vilnai. Right, because they were, they were responsible for this planning. 
And after finish, after I finished this assignment, I went to uh, the National Defense. There College. was there was a contingency plan called Fatherland, Eretz Avot, in which you were supposed to outflank the Iraqis by going through Jordan. Correct. This was before peace Correct. with Jordan. Correct. Correct. And we had the part of it to be the intelligence or the what you call the reconnaissance unit of this of this force. It was due to uh, carry out this mission under the under the control of this one. Do you regret not uh, being able to uh, no. execute no. this? Plan? No, not at all. <laughs> I think it was a mistake to do that. Okay, so to violate the, the sovereignty of Jordan at that time, I think it was uh, unnecessary. But you know, military units usually plan things without being able to implement it if needed, but for the sake of planning, to be prepared if needed. The very art of planning, of, of having right. those sessions, right. Right. And, right. and modeling, simulating. Right, right, right. Always, always like that. Okay. And then I, I went for a year for uh, the National Defense College, which was outstanding. It was a great year. And then I was assigned to be the... Intelligence, command, intelligence officer of the Central Command, under the command of uh, General Nehemiah Tamari, the late Nehemiah Tamari. And I began my assignment as an intelligence officer on the first week on a huge maneuver carried out by the whole Central Command. And General Tamari asked me before, who has to be the intelligence officer of this uh, maneuver? I said, uh, I think there's no questions. Only me. Because I have three more years at least to be here and to implement the lessons I will learn. And he said, uh, later on he said to me, I uh, liked very much what he said to me. Even though he didn't make pay, pay too many compliments to people, you know, he was a very... Reserved. Sealed man, in a way. So uh, I had a short time with him until he was killed. In a helicopter uh, in crash. In a helicopter crash in the courtyard of the Central Command on a very dark night and a very tragic night. And then... January General, 12, 1994. Correct. I remember that night very well because I uh, almost joined him <coughs> to fly with the helicopter to the same point because we shared some information regarding this flight. And he said, uh, I understand what you say, but I want to make sure that uh, everything is okay. And he flew there, and he didn't come back. Along with uh, his aide-de-camp and uh, two, uh, two other pilots. pilots. Right, right. And that was a tragic night, and uh, we had to recover. And uh, General Danny Atom came for three months as a replacement. And then we had the terrible issue of uh, the Cave of Monarchs in Hebron, the massacre of uh, Dr. Baruch Goldstein, which was a huge event, and uh, later on an inquiry about that, and I was called to testify. And everybody is asking me, uh, how didn't you know that a massacre like that is going to happen? And they said, it's very simple because it's not my responsibility. I'm not dealing with Jews. And the intention of Jews to carry out attacks against Palestinians. 
You also had, of course, the police and Shabak, uh, especially the internal security agency. Of course. And, but Baruch Goldstein was a reserve captain, um, a medical doctor. Right, right. right. But uh, he decided to get into the, monarch, the cave of monarchs and to kill... Cave of the patriarchs. Okay, and killed uh, 20, 29 people while shooting, and then he was killed by himself. And riots went all over the West Bank, and we had to control them and to uh, calm the area. So the Commission for Inquiry accepted your explanation. Right. But, right. but did you uh, realize that following that, not only riots, but uh, horrible terror acts um, will take place and, and that uh, Yasser Arafat will not be able or perhaps not even willing to, to control, control Hamas? Of course. Of course, we knew that. We knew that and we waited for that and we expected that and we were prepared for that. It didn't avoid part of these terror attacks, but, uh, but nevertheless, it was our assessment. Can you now, um, 28 years later, uh, guess at least uh, whether the entire Oslo process would have uh, proceeded otherwise had Goldstein not committed this massacre uh, and the terror acts uh, were then perpetrated? I don't think that this one affected the Oslo Accords. <clears throat> I think that what, uh, what most of it affected the Oslo Accords was the assassination of uh, Prime Minister Rabin. That was a great issue. This is a year and a half later. Mm-hmm. But, November, but, uh, November Gold, 1995. But both the Goldstein assassin, um, massacre mm-hmm. and the Rabin assassination were perpetrated by people who wanted not only to kill, but to affect the political process, and apparently, at least to some extent, they succeeded. Yeah, you know, on both sides you have the radicals who doesn't want this agreement to be implemented. So Hamas on one hand, had at that time, or at least the most active active man at that time was Ikhi Ayash, on the Hamas side, and on our side some other radicals. But he was in Gaza, or did he uh, escape from the West Bank? He escaped from the West Bank to Gaza after carrying out some attacks, often on buses mainly, and on Disneyville Street on uh, Purim evening. But uh, on the other side, uh, the Israelis as well, some heretical people that uh, try to sabotage and try to implement, or try to avoid implementing this agreement, and uh, in the end it succeeded, partly. Because in the end, the the Phase, the second phase of Oslo Accords was implemented. So now, as a city, meaning giving all the big cities to the control of the Palestinians. Now, twenty years after you retired from the military, and some fifteen years after you retired altogether from government service, what is your private view? Was the Oslo process doomed to fail, or could it have been salvaged somehow? I don't believe in the end that it would be success, successful. Because I believe that uh, there is too much hatred on both sides. Israelis will not give up in, up to the end, or up to the last minute, what the Palestinians expected to get. To, uh, to get and uh, there is a big gap between their expectations and what we are willing to give. So in the end, I, I don't believe it can be breached. And did it have anything to do with the way it was structured 
as an interim agreement uh, whose end is not predictable. It's not like the peace with Egypt, which was set in advance, but uh, was uh, slated to be executed over three years. I think, I think this is the main reason why, why they uh, decided the same way. Meaning they understood that uh, phase A, phase B could be implemented, but the question is what comes next? Nobody saw really, nobody really saw a Palestinian state all over Judean Samaria as, as a fact accompli. Yes, Rabin personally never supported the uh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know he didn't support it. We had some discuss some discussion with him and with the general chief of staff, El Barak, and uh, nobody really believed that it's going to be fully implemented up to the last minute. So this was your most frustrating duty, being the Central Command's intelligence officer? Part of it, part of it, because nevertheless, you have to adjust to the new reality, meaning you get out of the big cities in Judean Samaria, and you have to be prepared to uh, gather information and to operate or activate from the outside, inside, and not being part or inside the cities, and you had to adjust now all your methods and all your technologies to be able to monitor and to uh, prepare yourself if something happens to be able to go on like what we did in 2002. How did uh, Colonel uh, Suffering become General Suffering? What, what job did awaited you? I had another mission afterwards to be the head of the tasking department within uh, the military intelligence. And, uh, Which gives officers their um, new assignments? Yeah. Not, not only the new assignments, but uh, to task all the gathering units within the military intelligence to uh, be able to concentrate on the main efforts according to the EEIs, essential elements of information coming out from the, the director of military the, intelligence. The priorities, Correct. which mean that some some tasks get low priority, and then- Very low, there's very if, low. If there's some failure, you're being blamed. Always. You have always somebody to be blamed for it. Okay, so after that? After that, uh, about at the <clears throat> third year of my of this assignment, uh, General Alonso Malka became Director of Military Intelligence. And he was a career armor officer? Yeah, and I knew him for very long years because we served together at the Division 162. Where he was the executive officer? No, operation. He, was brigade, he was a brigade commander. Uh-huh, because uh, at one time he was also... Yeah, earlier. And then he said, uh, I, I ask you to uh, carry on and to uh, carry out this mission for another year because Shkhori is going to replace you, Colonel Shkhori. He's now at the National Defense College. And if you're willing to stay for another year and wait until he's graduating, I will appreciate it very much. I say, no problem. I'll stay. By that time, you are 44 years old? 44. And then he called me about six months later and said, uh, I see two options. The first one is uh, General Mofaz, the chief of general staff at that time, is reorganizing the armed forces. He's, being, he's now building a new arm, which is called the Ground Forces Command. There are talks about 
establishing a new core, which is called the Combat Intelligence Core. If it's going to happen, you are, to, you are going to be my candidate for that. And if not, you will suffer, you will go to the US and be there in a military attaché or intelligence attaché. But this is usually at the same rank. Yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, two good options. And in the end, they decided for me how to carry on, and I began establishing this core, which, from scratch. And that was fascinating, because uh, you build up units, you build up a military intelligence school for your own, or combat intelligence school of your own, regardless what happens in uh, the military intelligence school. And but a part of that, and you instruct people, and you train them, and you... But is it, is it um, beneficial for the intelligence discipline to be outside the intelligence core and as part of the ground forces command? There is a debate about that, because if you are in your natural uh, surrounding, like being in the field units, for example, and you have to work with surveillance units or in reconnaissance units, you have to be in touch with them. So I train them together as one team. They are, this one is gathering information, talking to the other one, he's tasking them and so on, and they began to learn to work together. They don't learn to work with other units in, in the military intelligence. That's but you personally were probably invited to all the sure. necessary of fora. Of course, of course. I was part of uh, the management of, uh, of uh, the military intelligence at that time. And you still had a Green Beret, uh, which intelligence officers were? With other, with other sign. With other sign on it, yeah. Yeah. How, how did you, was that, your uh, last position in, right, in right. the IDF? Um, you decided that there's no point in staying or? I decided because I said that I had enough. I don't see any uh, big future waiting for me because I know the, the rules of the game. You're not going to be a major general because you're an intelligence officer. And I say, I don't have to wait for somebody to tell me to go home. And I decided to go home by myself. But that was in 2003. But you didn't go home. You went to Mossad. No. I didn't expect to go to the Mossad. I didn't plan that. What happened? General Dagan gave me a phone call and said, uh, do I hear right? Are you going home? I said, yes. In, in late 2002, General Mayor Dagan replaced... Was appointed, was appointed to be the director replaced of the Mossad. Replaced Halevi, who was one of our guests here on this show. Right. And I say, you hear right? And I said... Uh, are you going to talk to me? I said, of course. And then I came for first meeting and second meeting and third meeting and so on. And I say, look, General, you don't owe me anything, really. Don't feel obliged. I will say hello to you whenever I see you. If you find something that is very, very interesting and very attractive, I will say yes. Did you have anything in mind? No, no, not yet, but, really. Did you know a lot about the Mossad? Of course, you're part of I the knew, same community. I knew because, because I, when I was uh, head of the tasking department within the military intelligence, I worked a lot with the Mossad. So I knew them very well. And then at the week that I had to be replaced by uh, General Yuval Khalamish, he gave me a phone call. It was at about uh, 
11 p.m. I want you to come here. I say, okay, what are you talking about? I said, I wanted to come and to be the head of the intelligence directorate of the Mossad. Now, this needs uh, explaining. Mossad itself is an intelligence agency. Of course, it also has... It's an operational agency. But it's part of the intelligence community. Right. And uh, what he offered you was to be the head of intelligence for Mossad. Right. Which, in a way, was a promotion to the equivalent of a major general's job. Correct. Correct. And he wanted you to reorganize the division? Mm-hmm. Correct. There was an attempt after the lesson learned from uh, the failure of uh, Mashal event in, in uh, Five Amman, years earlier. Amman. Yeah. There was an attempt to reorganize the intelligence directorate. Uh, not a very successful one at that time. And uh, he called me for that. Intelligence for Mossad operations or intelligence for the entire Israeli system? It's both. First of all, you serve the Mossad, and then you're advisor to the prime minister, in addition. Okay, and you take part in the, di- in the discussions in the cabinet with the government and so on. And I've been there for uh, five years, and I said in advance to General Dagan, I will come for one position, and I'll do it for uh, between four to five years. And when I say I had enough, don't stand on my way. Let me go. You always want to be your own man to dictate your terms. No, I don't dictate my terms. I said, if I look at the the future, I will never sit on your chair. Because always I'll bring or an operational man or somebody uh, from the armed forces that need to be compensated because he wasn't appointed to be general of uh, chief of general stuff. And the major general in uniform. Right, right. And I said, because of that, I know that I am going to do to be for one assignment because you call me. And if there's going to be something very attractive later on, we'll talk about it. But if not, don't stand on my way. And that was it. And it was about five years. And uh, I think one of the most attractive issues that I ever handled because you're dealing with everything from the tactical level or a macro-tactical level to the strategic one. And you're consulting the prime minister and you're sitting or attending all the discussions being held within the cabinet, within the government, and within what we call the security consultant being held by the prime minister, meaning the small group, which is actually dictating and actually designing all the decisions. Which gave you the germ of the idea for your PhD right. uh, thesis. But uh, because you were experienced in tasking, uh, and General Dagan uh, was too, what uh, were your priorities? Um, non-conventional weapons, terrorism? First of all, let's say that uh, two major uh, <coughs> priorities were dictated by the Prime Minister. Sharon. Sharon. Meaning, first of all, to try to uh, slow down the attempts of the Iranian to get nuclear weapons. And the second one was uh, international terrorism and the risk for Israelis and Jews all around the world. 
That was the, same, the, the two main priorities set by, by Prime Minister Sharon. International terrorism at that time was Al-Qaeda, probably, uh, right after Al-Qaeda. 9-11. Only, only Al-Qaeda at that time. Later on, ISIS became on, but at that time only, only, only Al-Qaeda, um, mainly to look at the risk for Israelis and Jews abroad. Was there a risk? There was this there was. Mombasa. After, uh, it was after Mombasa, of course. When, when uh, terrorists tried to uh, shoot down uh, an Israeli airliner. An Israeli airliner, and, and, and in addition, uh, there, was, there was an attack on a hotel where Israel was staying in Mombasa. And it was an intelligence failure? You had, your predecessors knew nothing I about it? I think so. I think so. I don't really know because I didn't look at the facts too much or too deep, but I think it was a failure. What about Iran? At that time, Prime Minister Sharon had a policy of not putting Israel at the center of the fight. At the front. The fr- at, the, at the front line. At the front line, but still working diplomatically and clandestinely and uh, not uh, uh, doing an overt uh, show of... Right, 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 right. Was that the right that, policy? That, I think that was the right policy for that time. Meaning he emphasized that Israel should not be at the front line. We are going to be only on the back, on the backstage, to feed our allies with all the information we had, all the information we acquired from our operations, to be able to uh, use it for diplomatic pressure on Iran and to bring Iran to the Security Council or to bring the Iranian issue to the Security Council. And that was a huge attempt that we carried on to find incrementing information that in the end brought Iran to the Security Council. Was it really the Iranian opposition which found out about uh, Natanz and Fordu, or was that uh, um, a clever tactic to uh, expose it? No, it was in addition to what we knew before. It wasn't the only source to that issue. And uh, we carried out a lot of activities Some of them, most of them are very clandestine uh, to slow down the Iranian uh, advance. And uh, successfully, uh, I I believe. Did you dispute the American intelligence assessment? On 2007. But regarding 2003, that the Iranians stopped their Imad operation. Of course. You disputed it. We had a huge dispute about it. And it came to the climax on 2007 when they published their NIE, the NIE, the National, National Intelligence, Intelligence Assessment or Estimate. And they claimed that uh, since 2003, the Iranians are doing nothing. And we said, how can you say some things? How can you say such a thing? It's, it doesn't really happen. Because it proved to you that they are doing everything under clandestine Coverage and uh, working very, so, very... So you still think that they were wrong? Of course. Uh, we will I, think, st- I think it was political. General political. Sofrin, we, we will stop here and resume our talk for a third and final part uh, soon. Thank you very much for the time being, and we will be back for another conversation with General Amnon Sofrin. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.